Okay, tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And we looked at Jehoshaphat last week, King Jehoshaphat, who came to power about 60 years after Solomon had passed away. And he's a fantastic king. His dad Asa was a good king. Jehoshaphat's a great king. And he takes up four chapters in Second Chronicles. So we get him again tonight, and we get this text about this great conflict that came against him and how he handled it and the things that we can learn for us tonight in our own lives from it. So in the background of Jehoshaphat there in chapter 20 is that he had set up you know, the regional judges to do justice and be faithful and diligent with the Lord in every village of Judah. No one had ever done that prior or after. He set up these great judges that centralized in Jerusalem to really lead the government and guide the people. There had just been incredible reform. It's a revival for the people of covenant spiritually, politically, and I'm sure probably economically as well. They're doing great. They're thriving. If ever there was an administration of human government that would have been under the blessings of the Lord, it is definitely Jehoshaphat's. He lined himself up and the people he led to really be in full blessings because of decisions he made personally and on behalf of the people. Phenomenal leader, as good as Hezekiah and Josiah, maybe actually even greater. He's was compared to David, and that's what we need to know. That's how great he was. But in this zenith of his reign, this coalition of people came against him, the Ammonites and others, and they were a great force, a massive army, one that even Jehoshaphat recognized he had no chance to withstand militarily. So it was quite disturbing. So the first four verses of chapter 20 is recognizes great multitudes coming against them and that he sets himself to seek the Lord. It says he was fearful and he set himself to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast, called the people to seek the Lord together, and they all came together. Then in verses 5 through 12, he prayed to the Lord in front of the people. They really gave the problem to the Lord as a nation, as a total entity of who they were, and they gave it to the Lord and reminded the Lord of his promises to them and the history that they had before him in being faithful to him at this point. Then in verse 13, God responded to them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon one of those present, and he prophesied that the battle is not man's, but the battle is the Lord's, and not to be afraid nor dismayed. In fact, that phrase pops up twice in that segment of Scripture. So very comforting words were spoken. In fact, the Lord actually said to the prophet to watch, to stand, and see the salvation of what God would provide for them. Now, that's happened before in the Old Testament, but here it is again where that term, that that sequence, that count, that those dominoes lined up to watch, stand, and see the victory and the salvation of the Lord. But the exhortation not to be afraid or dismayed popped up twice. So once that prophecy was spoken, then Jehoshaphat fell on his face and bowed before the Lord, and everyone went back to their tents for that night. And the next day is the day of battle which brings us to our text tonight. We're going to pick it up in verse 20, coming forward on the story, and this is what we read. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. But when he consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord. 
and who should praise the beauty of his holiness. And as they went out before the army, they were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come up against Judah. And they were defeated, for the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies falling on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away, and they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Baraka until this day. That is the Valley of Blessing. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And so they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Jehoshaphat's such a contrast to so many kings when you hear in the latter years they made bad decisions like Solomon and God chastened them on the back end. Here, you know, after this we read about his business deals that he shouldn't have made, but he learned from them when you harmonize kings with Chronicles, so that's not really a main event, but this is a main event. Now, as we've been going through the historical books, we've seen lots of battles. These are God's people. They have perpetual enemies, and it's just ongoing conflict from generation to generation, and this was the one that came in the time for Jehoshaphat. It came when he was had made really good decisions with the Lord. As I mentioned, he's probably made more good decisions than any king before him, equal only to David. Great decisions. In his personal life and in his calling politically, he's really set himself up to be blessed by the Lord. And we would just add to that, if you do those things in your own personal life, where you set yourself up to grow and be mature in the Lord, and you make good decisions in your calling with the Lord, when a multitude comes against you, you're going to feel stronger on that day. I mentioned Tuesday night, and I say again tonight, when you're walking in the right way with the Lord and the difficult day comes, it's just so much better that you're found on the rock of faith and obedience when that day comes. In 35 years of being a pastor, I've seen profoundly the difference between people who are on the rock when the multitude comes against them and those, in spite of faith, but faith that never developed, have built upon a life upon the sand. And when the multitude comes against them, they don't have the same confidence. Nonetheless, through personal faith in Jesus Christ, we can gain confidence quickly. But it's so much better to have a a reserve deposit that you can pull from of faith and God's your own obedience and good decisions and pull from all that compound effect of walking with the Lord, good decisions, how you treated people, all that you sowed and how you were, when a multitude comes against you, you're just going to feel stronger about it. 
Because again, ministering in many situations where people don't feel that way, it's a lot harder as the voice of the Lord as a pastor to build up their confidence on the difficult day because in their hearts, their own conscience convicts them and condemns them that they have not prepared properly for that day. Nonetheless, even when Peter was drowning, the Lord reached out and pulled them out of the water from drowning. But you just feel a whole lot better when a multitude comes against you that you've that you're, you're going in a good way. You just feel better about it. You don't have to wonder, like, is this a chastening? Like, if you're walking good and things happen, like the multitude comes against you, it, it just gives you strength to fall back on your good decisions. If you have financial problems and you've been diligent in how you manage your money and sowing bountifully for the kingdom with your time and your energy and you're a generous person, you know, and it starts happening where finances, just one economic problem after another, You'll just feel better when you have a track record that you've put the Lord first with your finances. Trust me, it's true. And there's something to be said for that. But we know that life gives us seasons. And there's just times, no matter how good you're living, a multitude will come against you. In fact, I would say, if you're living right, there will be many times when a multitude comes against you. People are envious of other people who God has blessed. People in the church are envious of other people in the church that God has blessed. People in the world are envious of people in the church that God has blessed. People are people and they can be envious and they, they can just not like you. Years ago at Calvary Costa Mesa, just one of those things that just randomly stood out to me when Pastor Chuck Smith mentioned that some people just don't like you without a reason. He was going through this list that, you know, some people don't like attractive people. Some people don't like unattractive people. And he's going through this whole list of some people don't like women. Some people don't like men. He's just going through this list. And he says, you know, and some people, they just don't like you. And I have to say, I was probably in my late 40s when he said that. And that thought never crossed my mind. I thought, doesn't everyone like me? <laughs> you know, I'm just being facetious. But, you know, like, 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 why would you just not like somebody? But you find it's true. It is true. So all the good living in the world doesn't guarantee you that you won't have a bad day. In fact, it probably sets you up for people coming against you. And so it was with Jehoshaphat. What a test of faith. And it says he was fearful. You read it, but, or I reviewed it for you, but he, he had a good foundation. This morning when they woke up, verse 20, they arose early in the morning. And the dawn always comes, doesn't it? I often tell people, when I'm doing a memorial for someone they love, that I say, you know, I'll, I'll note the date. I'll say, like, oh, hey, you know, it's July 29th. And I said, you know, you've lived 30 years. You've lived 20 years bearing a parent or, you know, something like that, or a love, you know, a spouse or something. You've lived 45 years. And I said, you know, 45 years with a calendar and a day planner. And, you know, 45 years, July 29th came and went, and it never meant anything to you on the calendar. And I said, but on this day, it is the day of sorrow. It's a day of, you have to, the day of reckoning. You, you're, you're putting someone you love, you're doing, you're putting your loved one in the grave. Now, that's a difficult day. There's days that are like a wedding where I'm like, hey, you know what, March 12th, that's, you know, 35 years I've been married. There was no day like March 12th, 1988. Now, that was that day. And I'd lived for 26 years and March 12th looked like this. But after I got married, it looked like that. The day took on significance. 
If you're being called in before your boss is in, your boss and falsely accused, that day will cost you a good night's sleep, right? We all know what that's like in the human experience to lose sleep and turmoil over some pending conflict at work, some accusation. Maybe you were negligent in something, but it was blown up a different way or falsely accused or it's your last day at work. You're packing up the cubicle. It's all going to go in a box. You're going to walk out that day. I mean, it's, it's the day of layoffs. It's the last day you're going to do the, it's the last day that your business is going to be open. Nothing stays the same. Everything's always in motion. Life is seasons. That's why the bird song to everything turn, turn was number one and so popular in the 60s. It's from Ecclesiastes. Your kids grow up and they move away. They make good decisions, they make bad decisions. Life is just season after season, and then there's a final season. But it's spring, summer, fall, winter. It's light, it's darkness. The night never lasts forever, and no season ever lasts forever, but they come and go in waves. And it's a human experience, and before you know it, you're in eternity, the eternal season. What a test here on this day. One can only imagine how they felt when they woke up. This massive multitude coming against their king, coming against them, coming for their houses, coming for their wealth, coming for their income, coming for everything that was theirs that God had given them. It's a day at court. It's, maybe it's a civil suit being resolved that day. The jury's got a verdict, you know. They're going to make, their, it's going down. You can't live 80, day, 80 years and not see this day. You just can't. And you usually see it within 20 And then you'll just see it in the sequences of the human experience. What an amazing phrase. They rose early in the morning and went out in the wilderness to face their greatest fear ever up to that day. Whatever date this was on the Jewish calendar, when they woke up that morning, they were facing their greatest fear they'd ever faced up to that day collectively. The whole nation, the wealth, their existence, it all hung in the balance. And all they could stand on that day was not their military strength, their economic strength, or even their love for one another. All they could stand on was the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe. I am that I am, the burning bush, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what they had man, you know, I don't know how they even slept that night. But they had a promise that no matter what they saw that morning when they woke up, they had to go out and they had to control their emotions. They had to define the circumstances instead of the circumstances define them. They had to control their emotions. And they had to believe, watch, stand, and see their salvation. They could do nothing for it. What an amazing story. And it's quite terrifying just to even think about being in that position. But we can relate it to personal things in our lives. I think we can. I've had some mornings I've had to wake up early that have just been gut-wrenching in my human experience, as have you. Yes and amen. Do you know this morning? A loved one's going to pass. Four years ago, December 28th, 2019, just a few days after Christmas, 
in a hospital room waiting for my mom to pass, I went to bed by her side, knowing that the next day, which was now the next day, because it was like three in the morning, her spirit would pass and go to, into eternity. And sure enough, that's what happened. There was nothing I could do to stop that day. My sister was there. Cousin Jimmy didn't want to see that moment, but Cousin Jimmy randomly showed up and walked in the room right when it happened. He had to see his grandmother step into eternity on that day. My brother was late. He was coming down from Ventura. He missed it (laughs) by two hours. There's mornings that you got to wake up early and you got to face things that pierce bone and marrow, soul and spirit. But we have to live and we have to go forward, always forward with Jesus Christ. And we have to face them. And, you know, the, the beauty of the human experience is that other humans have lived it. And God has been faithful to them in every generation as he's faithful to us in our generation. So if you are in fear of losing it all or whatever the day could bring, just know it's just part of the journey. And you, you rise up in the morning and you go forward in the promises and the person of God to face it. Which brings us to this day of victory because this day was like that day at court, was like my mom stepping into eternity, like all these things that we face that can be so uh, piercing of soul, bone and marrow, soul and spirit. But in this day, they rose up early and they had to face it. And we got to go forward, just like David going toward Goliath. We just got to go right toward it and face it, body of Christ, WG. It is, but it was the day of victory because when our life belongs to the Lord, it's going to always be the day of victory. And this was the day of victory for them. From fear and a numerous multitude coming against them to destroy everything that was their identity in the human experience, it would become the day of victory, which is exactly, of course, what Jesus Christ does for us because he is the victory. Christ is our victory, and he's the victor over all things. Jehoshaphat said... Believe in the Lord God and believe in the words of his prophets. So when we face this day, the first thing we see is we need to believe in God himself. To have our eyes set upon him, looking unto Jesus. To fix our eyes on God that day. The one who owns the universe, by whom and through whom are all things. In him all things are held together and consist. When we face this day, we, we need to... We need to believe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Isn't believing the whole crux of all of the entire human experience of time, space, and matter? If Adam and Eve believed about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they needed to believe the revelation of God. And then Christ called people to himself and he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Like, Believing is everything, but there's such a mystery to it, isn't it? Remember when the, the man's son was demon-possessed, and, and, he said, and Jesus said, do you believe? He goes, Lord, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, sometimes we feel we have great faith, and sometimes we feel like, oh, no, it's all going to unravel right now. I'm sure you can relate to that. You can feel so strong on one day to face these things, and the next day, you, you know, the feelings may not be as strong. But God never changes who he is, what he's done, 
where he's at, what he's promised, and what he's going to do. That's why the peace of God that surpasses all understanding surpasses all understanding. Sometimes you understand the peace, like, I have a peace about this. Other times, it's complete chaos. You're in the eye of the storm of a Category 5 human experience, and you're not feeling the peace at all. In fact, debris flying all around you. But still, he promises peace. Believing is the cornerstone and the foundation of everything in our experience. That our eyes are fixed on Jesus, particularly on a day like this, in what was the valley of victory, which became the valley of blessing, but really the day before, it was the valley of death. It was, it was the valley of fear because they were fearful, and God told them not to be fearful. So it had been in the human experience from human perspective, the valley of fear, but through the prophet, God made it the valley of victory, and when it was all said and done, they called it the valley of blessing. And isn't that what God does with every experience in our life? No matter how long the winter, no matter how dark the night, when there's faith in Jesus, he turns it into victory and blessing for good. They had to believe in his person and his promises, to believe in his person, who God is, and his promises. We talked last week about the fear of the, the the fear of God, and that the fear of the Lord. And what really starts out with fear and reverence for like the day of accountability and judgment, when we, when we accept the Lord and we grow in Christ, it moves from that fear to love and really respect and honor and love and having a loving relationship because we love him because he first loved us. Jesus is our friend. He calls us friends. God loves us. He's for us. And he works all things together for good to those who love him. And so we can, we can face this day and we can believe. And our belief may feel strong. Our belief may feel weak. But the more you invest, the more we invest in our daily lives of reading the scriptures, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the more we allow the Lord to be a part of our life on a daily basis in our decisions, in our conversations, the more we respond to the spirit in in just everyday human horizontal relationships when the Lord's like saying, don't say that, and then you don't say that. You set yourself up to grow in the Lord and in that relationship with the Lord. And when he says, speak up and say this, and you do, you grow in your faith. So again, you, our faith gets stronger because we're hearing the truth and then we're becoming the truth. And on this day in the valley of fear that becomes the valley of victory, When we wake up and face this day, we need to look in the mirror and say, I believe. I believe. You know, I talk about high school pep rallies and football games and stuff where they, we believe that we will win, and then the other team, they'd be saying it back and forth. Like, on this day when you wake up, like, I believe you have won, and we're coming from victory. And whatever is going to happen this day, it's going to pass through the loving hands of our Heavenly Father. And he promised through the prophets yesterday, the prophet yesterday, that stand and watch and see the salvation of our God. That is not subject to emotions, and you have to make emotions subject to it. You need to take truth and the person and the work of Christ and make every emotion that would come against faith and make it subject to that. Truth makes emotions subject 
unfortunately, many people let emotions make truth subject to them. So believe in who he is, his goodness. God is good. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. God is good all the time. And believe in his word because all the promises in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. Okay? So that's how we're going to face that day. That's how we're going to be. We're going we're gonna to frame it in faith. And we're going to go forward and we're going to crush it. Now, in their believing, I find it very interesting that the expression of their belief was in singing. Did you catch that? So they, he's like, hey, believe in the Lord, believe in his word. Now start singing. It, it all went together. That's why worship is so special because it ex, it's an expression of our belief and faith in the Lord. When we sing about the Lord, we're singing about his character. You are good. You are good, right? And we're singing about the things he's done. We're singing about his faithfulness in, in what he's done. And sometimes we're singing about promises from the word of God. But when you see those words on the screen, or they're not there sometimes because we maybe don't have that song or we're looking for it. Anthony back there, Brandon. Just know we're singing about who he is and what he's done and what he's promised. And we do that for 20, 25 minutes every time you come out here on a service. We're we're, we're setting the table for the truth to go forth. I've mentioned this lately a fair bit because it's just been on my mind, so I'm going to say it again. In the most challenging time in my lifetime, the COVID crisis and the attack on free businesses and churches, the ultimate attack was the attack on churches to not sing. That was just like, what? where's that even coming from? Like, could you ever imagine before 2020 that governments would tell you, you can't sing in a church? You, you couldn't even fathom such a thing. I'll tell you why. Because it was demonic. And you never saw such deep demonic darkness in your life. The devil hates praise. He hates songs about Jesus and songs to Jesus. I don't know about the rest of that craziness, but I can tell you, when they said no singing, that, without a doubt, is 100% spiritual. No matter what intentions, good or bad, that governments and politicians had, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt, they had good intentions based upon their medical data. The truth is behind it, it was demonic from start to finish. Because only the devil, who's the prince of the power of the air, would have the audacity in the darkest hour of our timeline to tell the church, you can't sing. Martin Luther, when he took on the entire Catholic Church and the world as we knew it, he took on the entire organized religion and all politics on three things. Only the word of God, only salvation by grace, and we sing to the Lord. I never knew that till COVID. But I began to research this. He, the 95 Thesis on that church door at Wittenberg, it was, those were the three macros. His three macros were Faith, scripture alone, faith alone, and singing to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? So obviously, in his timeline, in the suppression of the freedom of faith and religion, there was suppression of what was saying in the churches. In the darkest moment, in the most crucible hour of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, immediately after he said, I am the Passover lamb, and instituted communion, he walked out those doors of Jerusalem and went down the Garden of Gethsemane and he went down singing. What, I mean, he knew it was coming. In that once he said, I'm the fulfillment of the Passover lamb and instituted 
communion and the new covenant. This is my blood which was shed for you. He said that, my body given for you. Then he walked out the doors with the apostles, and he sang. He, they most likely would have sang some of those psalms known as the Psalms of the Ascents, between like 110 and 120 in the psalms in that stretch. Jesus sang hymns with his disciples as he headed for the Garden of Gethsemane to pray alone because, of course, they didn't pray with him. Wow. The power of praise in the darkest night. Paul and Silas, when the gospel first came to Europe in a new continent, and they were publicly humiliated and publicly beaten, and they were locked in the, in the prison there, what did they do? They sang praises to the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 5, when we're told to be spirit-filled, the identity of being spirit-filled by a biblical definition, at least in the corporate gathering, is to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another. See, you can watch all the movies, and you, if you go back to like the Civil War, both sides would have their songs they sang when they were about to go into a big battle at Gettysburg or whatever. It, it, the, the Russians, during the Russian armies, when they got beat most of the time, by the way, but they, had their, they would have their holy shrine things from the Russian Orthodox Church. They would sing songs as they were going out to face the Poles or the Prussians or whoever, or the Swedes. They, they, in history and war is people with their little icons singing their songs of victory as they're marching toward battle. <laughs> the difference for them and us is that we have the victory and we're coming from the victory. When you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you read about all, all the history of martyrs, you just hear time and time again of people singing and praising the Lord. You know, they're in the Colosseum before Caesar or at the burn at the stake, singing and praising the Lord. You only live once and you only die once. Sing with some praise in your heart. You just never know. Like the praise can repel all the darkness or that's, that's just the way to go. Man, I just... I figure I'm going to sing God of Wonders in that last moment. Like, if I realize this is it, God of Wonders beyond our galaxy, man, and I, I can't sing for anything. Y'all know that. It's so bad listening to me sing. The only thing worse is all the brands singing together because we are the worst singers on planet Earth. We got gifts for all kinds of things, but singing, we got nothing. We really got nothing. But we're told to make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? It's the day of the Lord. That's how we have to be. Man, you go into a court case and it's something ugly and gnarly. <laughs> God of wonders beyond our galaxy. Start singing. Start singing. For the battle is the Lord's. Believe and sing. To the last day. It's coming either way at some point in time. So we want to always be ready for the day of the Lord. And may the Lord find us singing his praises when it comes. Now, the second thing we see here is God fights our battles. We know that. We see this time and time again in historical books. But to just it, it's the application of this text. He fights our battles. His, the victories are varied in how he does it. You know, think about David. It's like David beat him this way, and David goes, do I go against the Philistines again this way? And God's like, no, 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 go around the mulberry bushes, and he'll come around this way and that way. Like this, when Sennacherib had surrounded Hezekiah in Jerusalem with 185,000 Assyrian troops, the most terrifying army in human history after that time. The angel of the Lord just came and struck them all down in one night. All of them, like this story, all of them. I'm telling you, in human history, there was an army of 185,000 
struck down in one night by the angel of the Lord. It happened in time, space, and matter. It was all out. But you know, sometimes God wants a teenager to run out there with a rock and take down Goliath and cut his head off. Like, you just never know how it's going to go. God does different things at different times. Maybe Jonathan's armor bearer, hey, if they do this, we do that. And then if they say that, we say that, and then we go get them. Like, the, the victories are varied. See, it's like the book of Acts. As the church was going forth in the book of Acts, there's such variation about the silliest thing anyone could ever do in Jesus' name is try and form theology, rigid theology, from the historical record of the book of Acts. Because it's like, you get the healing handkerchief, this is, spirit-filled looks this this way, spirit-filled looks like that way, and where men get in danger and being religious, and women too, is when they form like some lock, stock, and barrel theology from 28 chapters of the Bible. It's just so different what God did in every situation. We don't, we're not always going to have a healing handkerchief. You know what I'm saying? We're not going to tell people to burn their books all the time. Like, it's just, you just... God is the same yesterday and forever, and he doesn't change who he is, but how he brings victory and how he works, he's going to work within his, the boundaries of his scripture, but how he brings victory varies. This time he let the Ammonites and the Moabites turn against the Mount Seir people, the Edomites, and then all of a sudden they look at each other like pirates. You know, They take, they take out this pirate ship, and then they look at each other, and they take each other out. And one thing that probably was a factor is there's three days' worth of plunder of wealth that was amongst those armies. It says that the Lord set the ambush in verse 22. When they began to sing praise, the Lord set the ambush. The Lord, man, when people come against you, let the Lord fight your battles. We can fight our battles, and sometimes we might have to do something here or there, like take this legal action or do whatever, and good for us if we need to. But in the end, the Lord needs to set the ambush. And he can turn your foes against each other. No one escaped in this story. But I will, I will say this about the Lord's battles, that God fights our battles. It kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. We want to be on the right side of morality and truth when battles are being fought. Because we're told by Paul at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. There's a good fight and a bad fight. There's truth and falsehood. There's light and darkness. There's life and death. So if we're in a conflict, there's always going to be conflict because light and darkness cannot coexist and they're polar opposites morally and spiritually. We, we want to make sure that we're on the right side of things. We want to make sure if we have enemies, there are enemies because there's consistency of our character, decisions, and our life choices with the word of God. We want to be in trouble because we defend the defenseless. We want to be in trouble because we stand for truth when people try and change and redefine truth. We want to be in trouble because we believe the Ten Commandments are a moral code for human experience, though we're saved by grace. We want, to be in tr- we want to be in trouble because we believe all of God's word, the whole counsel. So then if you have trouble because people come against you, your character, your person, your business, your marriage, because you stand for the truth that's in God's word, then good for you. Because Jesus said, blessed are, men, blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake, and blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
And if you're standing on the word of God and it's attack is because of who you are as a woman of God or a man of God and all that your life is an extension flow chart of being a woman or a man of God, then good for you. Jesus said there's a blessing on persecution for righteousness. So when you face that battle and the multitude comes against you, let it really be for righteousness, for good things. Even if you're like Jehoshaphat and you made a silly mistake of going, you know, putting yourself in a chariot next to Ahab and going up to, you know, Jabez Gilead and fighting the Syrians. That was, you know, he had to feel pretty silly if you saw that text last week. But even so, he was a good man. He cried out to the Lord and the Lord delivered him. We want to be on the right side of morality the things of the spirit, the things of eternal, the things of God's character. We want to be in any battle on the side that is light and life and eternity. I look at younger ministers that I respect and admire who, who will fight a good fight. I fought a good fight. Man, I walked from Mexico to Maricopa interceding for this state in 2008, interceding for the next generation. I walked. I touched the border fence in San Ysidro, and I walked and prayed for every state, every governor, all the laws, the future of my children and my children's children, and I prayed against this darkness that came upon this land. And it would seem that it was in vain. Little did I know how dark it would really become. It looked dark in 08. Look what it looks like now. It's unbelievable. I was young. I was passionate. And then the Lord said, you're done. It's good. Election day 08, I got up, touched the water at Newport, 56th Street, walked up Harbor Boulevard, all the way to Los Angeles County. I prayed for the, those that couldn't pray for themselves or too deceived to even know truth and falsehood. I did what I could. I'm older now. I don't, I, I, I don't know if I could do that again. A couple years ago, I was like, Lord, I want to run a marathon, walk a marathon. The Lord's like, you already did with me. I did 30 miles one day the grapevine. Brian James was in a car tagging me, almost like a support crew. I walked from the base of the mountain in Ojai to the summit on the back highway, praying for your children's future and your futures and my children's future church. I see a post by John Randall. Guy's got so much fire. He is not messing around, man. John Randall is fearless. I love that guy. Man, John Randall tilts the room. He's a warrior for his generation. He's younger. You know, he's a little bit younger than me. Quite a bit younger, actually. Chuck was a warrior, right? Pastor Chuck, what a warrior dying of lung cancer in the pulpit, just bring it to the last day. What a warrior. Greg Laurie's a warrior, huh? He's not done yet either. Gosh. Greg Laurie's just like, oh my goodness. John MacArthur, these guys are heavyweights, but who's going to stand in the future? I don't know. But we need to make sure we're standing on the right side of what's true. And it tells us in Ephesians about the armor of God, Ephesians 6. It says, put on the whole armor of God and having done all, stand. Stand. See, that's really what we need to do, is stand. To take a stand and keep standing. Stand. And we should admire and respect those people who do. Finally, the last thing we see here, 
We need to believe God fights our battles, and we need to stand, sing and believe, let God fight, stand and watch. But then the rejoicing and the victory. You see here it says that, and the Lord has mentioned all these passages, because the Lord set the ambush, and he said, believe in the Lord. And here it says, with joy for the Lord, verse 27, with joy for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. The Lord is involved with all of it. Believe in the Lord, the Lord sets the ambush, and the Lord brings rejoicing. And that's, that's what the day of victory does. It gives us rejoicing. We can be happy. Happy is an emotion, and we can be happy for various things. And really, most people in life, what they're pursuing is happiness. If you love the Lord and you're generally happy, you're going to draw people to yourself and they're going to know more about the Lord. That's just the way it is. But if you're dour and sour and you talk about the Lord, no one wants to be around you. If you're negative and just ugh, jaded, like, oh, you need to get saved. And like you're negative and you're unhappy. It's like, yes, what's it? No, people want, to, people want to be drawn by happiness and joy. But the greatest joy of all is the joy that comes from what the Lord has done in our life with what he's done for us, what he's doing through us, but really his victories in this context, the victory. They were rejoicing the victory. They had three days plunder. They had all that temporal wealth, which just gets left behind and redistributed. And by the way, you know, 4,000 years later, who even knows where it's at? Looked like a lot of booty on that day, huh? a lot of wealth, a lot of, you know, like it, three days of gold and silver and precious jewel, jewelry, you know, jewels. And <laughs> where, where is it now? Well, it all, it all just gets, you know, goes back to the dust, just like our physical bodies. It gets lost. Ends up in some museums, some of it, but most of it's just gone. In First Thessalonians, we're told to rejoice always. Rejoice always is an exhortation after talking about the return of Christ Jesus, too, for us. To rejoice always. And I must say, and many of you know this, there's such a relief after the battle, right? When you just have this cruxable, something so stressful, this confrontation, this difficult thing. Man, when it's finally over and the Lord gives deliverance, man, there's just such a rejoicing. You're just like so happy it's behind you. But like I said earlier, the winter is only so long. There's long winters, but sooner or later, God makes sure they give way to spring. That's the way he set up our universe. Winter will always give way to spring. So in the darkest of your winters, don't lose hope. Spring will come, and there'll be rejoicing. And the Bible tells us in the Psalms, though there may be weeping at night, joy will come in the morning. The dark night will always give way. The dark night in the Garden of Gethsemane will always give way to the empty tomb on Easter morning. Always. We just have to endure. We have to persevere, and we have to stand and watch and see the salvation of our God. There are seasons of life, and in them, in all the battles we ever face in the valley of fear, we need to let the Lord's word, his person, his promises become our strength and our confidence that will turn it into valley of victory. Not only the valley of victory, but the valley of blessings. They receive blessings in the valley, and they bless the Lord in the valley. And I will say this is what I've learned in my life with all the spiritual victories God has given I believe every spiritual victory in every great cruxable of life is designed to put our confidence that much more in the Lord and prepare us that much more for what really matters, eternity. Though I hate the cruxable, I hate suffering, I hate trials, I hate tribulation, and I particularly hate death. 
But that quote from Britt Merrick, who buried his seven-year-old daughter years ago, Daisy, he said this, we all die, period. Every animal, the dogs I love, you, all of you I love, people who are no longer here that used to sit there or sit there, they're gone. We will all go. And this, to me, is the beauty of the victories that God gives us in the Valley of Victory is they are designed to move our affections, our disposition to the kingdom. They're designed to look up and prepare ourselves to align toward that. Every victory in the valley of fear moves us a day closer and a better preparation for all that God has for us in eternity. So you fight the good fight, and you you grind it out, and you just, oh, God, I can't take another day, and yet you do. And then he fights that battle on your behalf, And then he's coming in glory, and you're singing God of Wonders, or whatever comes to your mind, but hopefully you'll be singing a praise song. That's what we do. See, the rejoicing in the victory, to me, is just moving us toward eternity. It strengthens our faith in time, and it strengthens our hope for the day of the Lord. These people, they were taking all that plunder home, but really it's like, man, the bosom of Abraham. Think about the glory. Think about the burning bush and live with that reality in mind. Yes and amen.